you know, Wednesday night at, at youth group, uh, and if your kids are in the youth group age, I encourage you to send them there. We have a great time with the kids, 60 or so kids, middle school and high school, every, every Wednesday night. Uh, we sang that song, Heart of Worship, and it brought back memories to me. And I, I don't know if you know the story behind when Matt Redman wrote that song. Um, he was a worship leader at a church and obviously a very good worship leader. Um, but he felt things, people had lost the reason why they were worshiping. And, and so they did a timeout and said, we're not going to, they got so caught up in maybe the performance that they forgot what it was about. And so they went through several weeks where they didn't have any time of praise because they thought they lost their focus. And then one Sunday morning, he walks up to the piano and he starts playing that song. You know, you know I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made it. You know, I, I make the praise time, I make coming to church, I, I make preaching a sermon, I, I make teaching a Sunday school class, I make even serving other people about me. But it's all about you, Jesus. See, the heart of worship is, is Jesus. And, and, and I was so excited we sang that song because it's a, it's a great reminder of why we do what we do, right? It's all about Jesus. And if he's not at the center, then it's just a waste of time. It's about us. And you do not deserve to be in the center, and I do not deserve to be in the center, only Jesus. Amen? Amen. Great song. Hey, I want to start off reading uh, several passages of Scripture that are both powerful and are inspiring. First is John 4, verse 14. Jesus said, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. Someone say, never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. John 10.10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Philippians chapter 4, 12 and 13, Paul says, I know what it is to be need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in one, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Question. Have you ever read scriptures like these that describe the full and abundant life that is supposedly ours as a Jesus follower? Never thirsty again, content in every situation, no longer anxious about anything, having a living hope and experiencing a peace that transcends all understanding, being filled with a joy that is inexpressible and glorious. Again, have you ever read passages like that and thought, yeah, it sounds great, but my life sure doesn't look like that. Instead, there seems to be more anxiety than peace. 
At times I can feel rather hopeless. And joy seems to always elude me and I find myself still thirsty all the time. Yeah, every time I, I try to experience the, the life and live like that, it's like I'm walking to a stiff wind or running uphill into a brick wall. Question, why is life so difficult? Why at times do, do we struggle? Why, why do our best efforts at pursuing peace and contentment and joy and fulfillment and hope seem to constantly elude us? Because I said last week, as we began unpacking the closing words to the greatest prayer ever prayed, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's because we have a powerful and unrelenting enemy who has declared war on us. John Eldridge writes in his book, Waking the Dead, by all means, God intends for you life, but right now that life is opposed. It just doesn't roll in on a tray. There is a thief, and he comes to steal and kill and destroy. In other words, yes, the offer is life, but you're going to have to fight for it. Turn to the person to your right and left and say, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to fight for it. And he concludes, because there's an enemy in your life who has a different agenda. And here's the deal. If you want to experience the abundant life that God has for you, does anybody want to experience the abundant life God has for them? Then you need to fight for it. And if you want to fight the win, you must know three things. You must know your enemy, you must know your responsibility, and you must know your God. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we wrap up our deep dive and to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And guys, I, I, I want to encourage you to, to really lean in this morning. Because falling into temptation and doing evil is like a really huge deal. Someone say, a really huge deal. I mean, check out what God inspired James to write to us in the first chapter of his letter. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And, and these terms are fishing terms, right? You know, the bait is dropped, we're attracted to the bait, and we're okay unless we do what? Unless we take a, a bite, and then we're on that hook. Then after desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, see, when desire is conceived, when we give in to temptation, we do evil things, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to, it gives birth to, thank you, death. And the death he's talking about is spiritual death. Separation from God. And spiritual death is a big deal. In fact, there is no bigger deal. In fact, if we do not deal with this before we meet Jesus, 
then our forever will be separation from God. Again, today, on January 22nd of the year 2023, we're going to talk about how to fight to win. Before we do that, we're going to take two, and that's when we get up and welcome those around us, and then I'm going to pray us into the rest of our study. So take two and welcome those around you. Amen. Heavenly Father, God, we, uh, we come into your presence, Lord, and uh, God, we know that sometimes in this battle, we, we don't do so good. Uh, sometimes the enemy gets the upper hand, and we, we look up and we find ourselves doing things and acting in ways that we never believed were possible, God. And God, I pray this morning that your word will impact in such a way that we'll be able to stand our ground against this enemy. And we know we can with you. Uh, God, I ask you would help me to uh, share this truth in the correct way and in a way that brings you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we need to know our enemy, and we talked about this a lot last week, so this will go rather quickly. And, and, and I do want to mention, um, you know, out in the foyer on the white table, I always have outlines. And, and uh, they're very detailed um, and not saying you have to fill those out, but you know, sometimes the most important part of a sermon, right, is not what happens in here. Um, we went to a leadership thing. We got a fire hose yesterday, right, all kinds of stuff. And I, I pretty much grab a fire hose every week. And, and, and uh, what those sheets are meant for you to be able to fill those out and then go back and reflect on it during this week and say, hey, God, you know, what's my takeaway? What were you trying to tell me? Was there something you wanted to tell me about myself? Is there some action I need to change? So um, I want to encourage you to, you know, if you're a good note taker, you know, you want to grab those. I even hole punch them so you can stick them in a binder um, and reflect during the week. Um, but <clears throat> we talked about this last week. We got to know our enemy. Um, we got to know who he is. Uh, we got to know that he's extremely powerful. And as that 500-year-old hymn, Mighty Fortresses Our God says, his craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal, right? He's very powerful. We need to know that he's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We know that he is a roaring lion looking to devour you. We know that he's an angry dragon, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, who has already declared war on you because you want to follow Jesus. And you know, there's this quote in the, the story of the Hobbit, yeah, when Bilbo and his crew are trying to take back their home mountain, there happens to be a dragon there named Smog, Smog, Smogog, <laughs> Smog, Smog. Well, you know what? I, I went online, and there's so many different ways of pronouncing that. And Smog. Did I say that? Smog. I tried to say it. Hey, if, hey, Nate. What do I get on that? All right, anyhow, anyhow, I'm not a good pronunciator, all right? But anyhow, the problem is there's this dragon with this crazy name that's there, and they want to take back their, that home mountain. And, and, and the quote is, it does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you live near one. It does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you're near one. If you live near one. And I'm here to tell you that you live near 
an angry dragon. And if you try to live your life without taking into consideration that he's there, it will do you no good. Amen? We didn't know his target, who he is. We didn't know his target. His target is our what? It's our heart. You ever had any heart attacks lately? Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Understand your enemy is and will always be attacking your heart. Because everything flows from it. John Eldridge says in his book, Waking the Dead, the story of your life is the story of the long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows who you could be and fears it. You need to know his goal, your destruction and spiritual death. You need to know his method, his battle strategy, which is temptation. Understand, our enemy, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that he, he masquerades as an angel of light. That means he's very deceptive. Understand, he he lures us into his his zapper, right? Like I talked about last week. He he lures us into his version of of the Roach Motel, right? Where you check in and you do not check out. He he puts a, a bait on the hook in front of us, falsely promising life and things that ultimately lead to our death. In other words, he makes sin look good. Pleasing, desirable, and satisfying, which they are not. Get it? Good. Again, to defeat your enemy, you need to know him. And I guarantee that he carefully knows and studies each of us in this room. He, he knows the temptations that you struggle with resisting. He, he knows your weaknesses. He, he knows the times when you're the most weak, maybe it's when you're tired, maybe when you're so stressed out by life, maybe it's when you're alone. And he exploits every single one of them. He knows you. You need to know him if you want to defeat him because you're in a war. Next, you need to know your responsibility. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away enticed. How good are you at accepting responsibility? Like when you do something wrong, are you able to admit it? Or do you try to blame somebody else or something else? You get a bad grade in school, something goes wrong at work, you have issues in a relationship, it's their fault. You get angry and you lose control, they make me do it. If they didn't, then I wouldn't have. It's not my fault. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that there's an epidemic in our country of people refusing to take responsibility for their actions and inactions. Everyone's always blaming someone else or something else for the things they do wrong or the good they don't do. And unfortunately, our culture, our media, and even our government feeds, promotes, pacifies, and even legislates this unhealthy and destructive mindset. But listen, the Bible is all about personal responsibility. For example, we are responsible for our own conduct. Galatians 6.5. We are, we are responsible for our sinful behavior. James 4.17. We're responsible for using our spiritual gifts. Romans 12.6-8. through 8. 
Matthew 25. We're responsible for caring for our families, 1 Timothy 5.8. We're responsible to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, verse 12. We're responsible to love one another as Christ loved us, John 13, 34, and 35. We're responsible to care for the least of these, Matthew 25. Listen, as a Jesus follower, you have some responsibilities when it comes to resisting and overcoming temptation and not doing evil things. Here are a few of them. It's your responsibility to pursue authentic joy. You know, if I I had to name the single greatest emotional resource against temptation, it would be joy. In in Nehemiah 8.10, we read, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And what I'm trying to say is that if we want to resist temptation, we need to arrange our life around joy, around experiencing the joy of the Lord. Yeah, I believe that authentic God out of joy may be the single greatest weapon that a person can use to fight temptation. On the other hand, joylessness always sets us up and makes us vulnerable to temptation and sin. In other words, unhappy, miserable people tend to fall into temptation and sin more. Get it? Good. Dallas Willard, a super smart guy, said this. Failure to attain A deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. I'm saying if you have authentic joy in your life, temptation, which is always the offer of the illusion of joy, never joy itself, then that temptation is not going to look so good. It's just not. So the question is, how do you increase the joy factor in your life? Like what are the activities and relationships that are God-honoring that bring you authentic joy. I mean, maybe it's being out in nature. Maybe it's, there's music that you listen to. Uh, maybe it's learning new things. Maybe it's spending time with family and friends. Maybe it's some physical challenge that you take on. And listen, as we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think we also need to pray, Lord, help me to be a more joyful person. Help me to find those things that will bring me joy Authentic joy helped me to have a deeply satisfying life so this temptation will not seem so appealing to me anymore. Next, it's your responsibility to starve temptation, not feed it. Paul says in Romans 6, 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. In other words, starve temptation, do not feed it. Listen, if we're honest, we'd have to admit that we tend to play around with things that lead to sin. I mean, we're like the young boy whose mom said, you're not allowed to go swimming today. Later he comes home and his hair's wet and he's wearing his bathing suit. She says, Johnny, I thought I told you, you cannot swim. He said, I couldn't help it, mom. The water looks so good. She says, well, how come you took your bathing suit with you? Well, I took it in case I got tempted. (laughs) Or like that overweight guy who decided that it's time to lose weight. He took it seriously. even changed the way he drove to work so he wouldn't pass his favorite bakery. Well, one morning he'd arrived carrying three boxes of donuts. 
He said, hey, I accidentally drove by the bakery, and there they were, hot and fresh in the window. And I thought it wasn't an accident, so I prayed, Lord, if you want me to have one of those donuts, give me a parking place directly in front of the store. And sure enough, he continued, there it was, the tenth time around the block. <laughs> now, many, many years ago on a TV show called Hee Haw, I know it's before your time, Hee Haw, <laughs> but in one clip, a guy comes to Dr. Campbell, he says, Dr. Campbell, I, I broke my arm in two places. What should I do? He says, well, stay out of those two places. <laughs> Slowly. I understand there are certain places and situations that we need to stay out of. Amen? Because if you play around with fire long enough, you will get, you'll get burned. So let me ask you, are there some places you need to stop going? Are there some people you need to stop hanging out with? Are there some internet sites you shouldn't go to? Are there some situations you need to avoid, like being single and being alone in a home or the backseat of a car with someone of the opposite sex? Understand, it's your responsibility and mine to starve and not feed temptation. Yes, some of us need to put our temptation on a diet, Amen. Maybe that's the diet you need this year. I need to put my temptation on a diet and stop feeding it. Because temptation when full grown leads to death. Now one of the classic fails in this is King David with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter 11. Like he knew exactly what he would see when he went up the rooftop. Bathsheba bathing. He knew exactly what would happen when he had his servants bring her into his bedchamber. He played around with things that made him weak. And the price he paid was high. He actually wrote it in his journal in Psalm 32. He says, this is how he felt. He says, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. But then in that Psalm, he says, he confessed to God and God forgave him and restored him. And listen, when God restores, he restores. When God forgets, he forgets. When God forgives your sin and you bring it up again, he goes, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Because I buried that to the deepest part of the ocean. Amen? A guy named Dag Hammarskjöld, he was Secretary General of the United, United Nations in the 1950s, said this. This is good. You cannot play with the animal in you without becoming holy animal. Play with falsehood without forfeiting your right to truth. Pray with cruelty without losing your sensitivity of mind. Here's the kicker. He who wants to keep his garden tidy doesn't reserve a plot for weeds. He who wants to keep his garden tidy does not reserve a plot for weeds. Amen? Next, it's your responsibility to use the right resistance. Just as all sicknesses are not cured by the same medicine, not all temptation has the same resistance. We must fit our resistance to the temptation. For example, when dealing with sexual temptation, we are told to flee, to run, to get out of Dodge as quick as we can. That's what Joseph did in Genesis 39, verse 12. Potiphar's wife, it says she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. He ran. Paul gives the same advice. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. 
which is sexual activity between anyone other than a husband and wife in a covenant relationship. All other sins a man commits are outside his own body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. 2 Timothy 2.22, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Bottom line, if you try to fight or negotiate with sexual temptation, you will get zapped. You will wind up at the bottom of this tray, fried and electrocuted. Get it? Get it? Good. If we're tempted to gossip and slander someone, there's some resistance for that too. Keep your mouth shut. Listen, a bridle is not the answer for gossip. You need a muzzle. Stop talking. Don't say anything. James says, if we claim to be religious but don't control our tongue, we're fooling ourselves and our religion is worthless. When I think about the right use of my tongue, I think of that great theologian from the classic movie Bambi. What year do you think that came out? 1942. And I'm talking about the theologian, that pink-nosed rabbit named Thumper. If you can't say something nice, if you can't text something nice, if you can't tweet something nice, if you can't post something nice, don't say anything at all. Amen? Wouldn't that, would that change some relationships? I mean, it make Twitter less interesting, right? And all those comments on Newsfeed. People, man, they just so hateful. I mean, it's like, you don't even know that person. They're just right, ready to destroy them, right? You can't say something nice. Shut up, right? Use the right resistance. Sexual temptation, you run and flee. Gossip, hold your tongue. Laziness, get off your butt and start working, right? Bitterness, resentment, you forgive. Holding back from giving the Lord what is his, you start giving it back. Next is your responsibility. Remind yourself of the final pain that will soon replace the passing pleasure. That's a long point right there. Remind yourself of the final pain that will soon replace the passing pleasure. That's what Moses did. Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than, someone say rather than, to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Is sin pleasurable? Uh Uh-huh. That's why we do it. That's why people risk their reputation. That's why they risk their careers, their families, even their faith, just to taste its flavor. I mean, if the bait on the hook did not look appealing to the fish, he would just swim right away. However, though pleasurable, it lasts only a short time. You have your kicks, then you have your kickbacks. You sow, and then you reap what you have Sown. Listen, when sense pleasure is dangling a hook right in front of us, we need to remind ourselves that the pleasure of sin is temporary and the consequences of sin can be severe. Sure, it may feel good at the time to lose your temper and let that person have it. It may feel good at times, you know what? They hurt me. They want me to forgive them. I want them to know that I will never forgive them. It may feel good at the time to step outside of God's boundaries for sexuality. It may feel good to be self-centered. 
And only think about yourself. But there are consequences. Listen, sin will always take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. Take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. If you want to win the fight against temptation, it's your responsibility to remind yourself that the final pain will soon replace the passing pleasure to pursue authentic joy, starve and not feed temptation, to use the right resistance. And it's your responsibility to put on the full armor of God. And, and what I want to do as we wrap up is I want to take the armor of God off the flannel board into practicality, right? Uh, we all know this, uh, armor of God, right? Okay, if we don't know what it is, we don't know how to put it on, how effective is it? Not, Right? And so Paul, after talking about the struggle we have against this great enemy, he says this, Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, Ephesians 6, 13. You want to turn to Ephesians 6 if you want. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And therefore you've done everything to stand. Then he says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. I'm sure the belt of a Roman soldier kind of held all the other parts of the armor together. In like manner, the belt of truth holds together the armor of the Christian. And this truth is not the, it's not the truth of, of Scripture. It's not talking about the Bible. He'll talk about that later in this passage. What he's talking about here is we need to put honesty, integrity. We need to buckle that around our life. A few verses Proverbs eleven thirteen. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Matthew five thirty seven. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. John eight forty four. You belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a father of all lies. He's a liar and the father of all lies. Here's the deal. We cannot defeat our enemy if we're playing the game on his field, the field of dishonesty and integrity. We do that, we're giving him home field advantage, Right? In football, you want to play with your home field, right? Because the, the, the 12th man is the fans that can cheer and cause you to have all kinds of false starts and penalties, right? And when you, when you live in honest, dishonesty and, and not have integrity, you are playing the game, and he now has home field advantage, and you're more likely to lose. You see, once we allow falsehood to take root in our life, once we lose our integrity, like everything falls apart like armor without a belt. Question, do your words and actions match? Can people, do people trust what you say? Do they know that your yes is yes and that your no is no? Are you the same person in the dark when you're by yourself as you are when the light is shining on you? Do you have buckled around your waist the belt of truth? It's your responsibility to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this piece of armor made of metal plates and chains that covered both the, the back and the front and protected the, the most vital organs of a soldier. 
And I think as Paul talks about this breastplate of righteousness, I think he has two aspects in mind. A positional aspect and a practical aspect. Hang with me, okay? The positional aspect is the righteousness we have because we're in Christ, okay? Uh, Romans 8.1, right? One of my favorite verses because I mess up a lot, right? Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Understand, when we are in Christ, we stand before God uncondemned because we stand in his grace. And that's an essential weapon against the attacks of the evil one who still wants us to live under the law of do to be. And the blessed by the righteous allows us to say, hey, I am right with God. Not because of my performance, but because of Jesus. And our hearts protected from his attacks. And there's many passages of Scripture that talk about the phrase in Christ. You can go on Bible Gateway and you can look up the terms in Christ or in him. You're going to see it's all over the New Testament. And it, you can see that salvation is, being in Christ is essential for our salvation. And so the question of the ages is, how do we get in Christ? And I'm a believer, if the Bible answers that question for me, that's the answer that I'll stick with. And we find two places in the Bible. Acts chapter, I mean Romans, Romans 6 verse 3 says this. I think I have that, yeah. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus... We're baptized into his death. Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And so when a repentant, confessing believer is immersed into Christ, they are now in Christ. Does that make sense? And so that's our positional aspect. Hey, I'm in Christ. Now the practical aspect is our, our righteous life, how we're living. And this is where it gets kind of sticky. And this is important because Satan, according to Revelation chapter 12, he accuses us night and day. And and I'm going to put a statement on the screen. The life we live either fortifies us against Satan's attacks or it makes it easier for Satan to attack and defeat us. And here's what I mean by that, right? If we're not living right and we know it, it's hard for us to be really totally confident in God's grace. Why? Because we are taking advantage of it. Why? Because we're not supposed to be living for sin anymore, and yet we're still living in sin anymore. We're still living in sin. So we're not that confident. And so when Satan accuses us, you know, we don't feel as confident because, well, gosh, I, I, I'm pretty kind of 72% sure I'm okay. But we have these sins that make us feel that we're not. Are you sure? You're right with God? I mean, if you really were right with God, would you really be doing those things and, and thinking that way? And, and so it's very important for us, right, 
you know, yeah, we have, we, have our, we have our positional righteousness, but it's when we are living the best we can for God. Not that we don't mess up, but we're not like, hey, I'm sinning, and that's cool. Don't worry about it. You know, it makes it easier for him to attack us. I hope that makes sense, because some of you are getting attacked, and, and, and you don't feel that you're saved because you're not living right. And, and what you need to do is realize you're saved because of Christ, and you need to repent of your sin, right? And, and then you go, okay, Satan, get out of my face. Get out of my face. I'm okay with God. We need to put on the gospel of peace with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of, of peace. A Roman soldier wore a half boot with made of leather. It had studs on the bottom that, that, that help you kind of stand your ground. And, and boots allowed soldiers to dig in the ground, allowed them to make long marches. And we know like from things like Valley Forge that you know, we have soldiers in the room. I think your shoes are important, right? If your feet are not good, they're blistered and all messed up, it's hard for you to keep on marching. And so it's important for a soldier to be prepared for battle. Have you ever been unprepared for something? It usually spells you know, the feet, right? And so Paul says in Ephesians 6.15 that the gospel of peace prepares us and makes us ready for battle. Well, how does it do that? I think the answer is found in Romans 1, verse 16. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so do you see those two ways? The gospel, the gospel's power makes us ready. Now, does, does knowing that he has a great power behind him. Does it, it give a soldier confidence in battle? Sure it does. Like when the guys stormed the beach at D-Day, knowing they had naval and air support, that power behind them gave them confidence, right? It's not just us hitting the beach. We got this great power behind us. Well, the gospel is the power, the dunamis, where we get the word dynamite, of the all-powerful God. And next, the gospel purpose makes us ready. As a soldier, is knowing your purpose, knowing why you're fighting, is that important? I remember in the mid-90s going to a leadership conference in Tampa, and General Norman Schwarzkopf was there, one of the speakers. He's the one who led Desert, Desert Storm. And I remember saying specifically, he was talking about, he was also an officer during Vietnam, and he said, you know, one of the problems with Vietnam was that none of the soldiers really knew why they were there. Didn't know the purpose. He said, but in Desert Storm, everyone from him down to the lowest private understood the mission and what they were trying to accomplish. They understood the purpose. And what is the purpose of the gospel? The salvation for everyone who believes. And so when we know the purpose that we're able to endure all the hardship we encounter. And listen, there is no greater purpose than the cause of Christ and his gospel. Changing the forevers of people, freeing them for spiritual death. Amen? Is there any greater purpose than that? Than someone who is under God's wrath and now they're no longer under his wrath? So the gospel's power and purpose makes us ready. Then we have the shield of faith. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can distinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Shields are made of wood. So one of the ways you're to attack you, shoot a flaming arrow, wood catch on fire, not a good deal. Well, what they would do, they covered the shields in leather, dipping in water, 
And so it would keep the arrows from lighting their shield on fire. Another good plan. See, we have an enemy who's constantly launching his flaming arrows at God's people. Tempting us to sin. Come on, take a bite. You deserve it. It'll make you feel better. Just one more time and you can quit tomorrow. You can put down that drink tomorrow. You can stop going to those internet sites tomorrow. Other people are doing worse things. It will end differently this time. So he constantly launches these flaming arrows, tempting us to sin and, then, and also lying to us about who we are. You're not loved. You're not forgiven. You're not cared for. You're not significant. You're not needed. You're not valuable. You're not doing enough. You're not good enough. You'll never measure up or be worthy of his love. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Listen, your faith is a shield that will protect you from those flaming arrows. Well, how does that work practically? So when the flaming arrows of the enemy's lies come about who you are, when they come raining down on you, it's your faith in Jesus, who he is and what he does, that will protect you. Satan, that's not true. Those are lies. I'm not going to listen to you because I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know that I am loved. I know that I am forgiven. I know that I'm a new creation. I know that I'm God's masterpiece. I know that I'm significant, that I matter to God, that I'm his child, and that in Christ I'm more than a conqueror. You're a liar. I'm not going to listen to you. Listen, when your thoughts discourage you, depress you, and bring you down, and make you feel unworthy, those thoughts are not from God. They're lies of the enemy. Amen? And when the flaming arrows of temptation of sin rain down on us, our faith once again becomes a shield. No, I will not do that. I can't do that. That is not who I am anymore. I'm a Jesus follower. I'll not dishonor him. I'm called to live like him. It reminds you who you are. I can't do that. It's kind of like if we, if we had on our forehead and hands a shirt, right? I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, right? It'd be kind of hard to walk into some place you shouldn't be, right? And we might have, hey, I think I'm going to flip my shirt inside out, right? Because I'm, I'm going to go to that club. I know I shouldn't be there, but I want to be there. So if they see this shirt, you know, they're going to think, oh my gosh, that's a Christian. So I'm going to turn that inside out, right? But see your face says, hey, I can't do this because of who I am. And what we're going to do right now, I'm going to talk about the helmet of salvation. And we're going to finish the rest of this conversation next week. And we need to put on the helmet of salvation. I'm going to tell you something I think you know. Your head is important. Like, you can lose a hand, an arm, a foot, a leg. But from what I've seen in research, if you lose your head, like, it's over, right? Like, it's over. Like, your head is really important. That's why we protect it, right? That's why Roman soldiers wore a helmet. That's why in some sports, right, football, riding bike, motorcycle, wearing a helmet is extremely important. We're in a battle. We have an enemy. And he's going to go for your head. He will try to get inside your head and mess with you and discourage you. And Paul says that your helmet of salvation 
protects your head. For a long time, I had no idea what really that meant. Until I read 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8 says this. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, put it on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Is hope essential? Is it essential for a sports team who looks up the scoreboard and they're down by three scores and it's deep into the third quarter? If they still have hope, they can still pull it off. They go, it's over. Then guess what? It is over. Is hope important to a soldier? See, we need to remind ourselves of the hope of our salvation. Because many times the individual battles we find ourselves in give the appearance that we've already lost and it's over. I I, I mean, bad things happen to good people. Doctors bring back bad reports. Children fall away from the Lord. Oftentimes in life we suffer, we hurt, we feel pain, and we're hit with hard times. And it can seem like we're losing and again, I've used this illustration countless times, but it's so powerful to me since we're talking about a war especially. You know, D-Day, right? June 6th, right? D-Day. And, and the soldiers attacking that beach when they knew that landing craft opened and they knew that, you know, eight out of ten guys on that landing craft is dead. And you know what they thought? We are losing. We're losing. But yet the commanders who had an aerial view Watching the whole thing, you know what they were saying? We're winning. We're winning. We're winning. And, and, and see, life is hard. But the end of the chapter, when this war is over, guess what? We win. It's already been decided. When we're going through those hard times, we need to remind ourselves, guess what? One day, the trumpet will sound. One day, the sky will crack open. One day, the Lord will descend and take me home to my incredible forever with him. Amen? Amen. Guys, Know your enemy, know your responsibilities, right? Again, we're going to finish this up next week. I really want you guys to think about it because this, this, this is so, you know, if we prepare for battle, we're going to have, I don't like to lose. <laughs> you know, in, in a board game, you know, in Madden football, <laughs> I don't like to lose, you know. If we embrace these teachings, we'll have less losses, right? Wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't it be great not to fall into temptation and do things you don't really want to do, right? And God has given us the power to overcome these things and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're going to sing a closing song and it's the one we sang last week. You know, it's one that has a, that line I just love. You know, check your shame at the door. It's not welcome anymore. God loves you. He's on your team. 
And I like to tell you we're in Disney World and it's all fun, you know, you know, ponies and rainbows, but it's not. It's a war. And God wants you to win. He wants to help you win so you can experience all the life that he has for you. Um, we're the, if you haven't picked up your communion, we have it off those stations and we grab it and we take it together. That's where we have our offering boxes. If you guys would stand, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we are... God, some of us are tired. Some of us have faced a lot of defeats and the enemies come at us. And, and Lord, we're so grateful that with you it's always a new day. With you it's always a new opportunity. With you we are more than a conqueror. But with you we can overcome these things and rise above these things. God, I pray for every marriage. I pray for every family, every relationship. God, I pray for every struggle we're going through. God, I pray against every temptation, the enemy, every flaming arrow that he will shoot at us this week, God, that we'll stand strong in you and that we'll know, God, that you love us and that we're so grateful that because of you, we have hope. In Jesus' name, amen.